0: I want to invite you to uh, open your copy of God's Word this morning to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25, and we'll, we're going to look at all of uh, chapters 25 and 26 this morning, but uh, as briefly as we can. When last we left our brother Paul, he was confined in Caesarea uh, under the uh, rulership or the governance of the, the governor Felix at the time. Uh, You'll recall there that Felix kept him for about two years playing this game of going back and forth, of hearing Paul's testimony and talking about things uh, related to the faith or the faith called the way that uh, Paul was a servant of, uh, the the way being a, a word that was used to refer to Christianity in its earliest days. And we'll pick up here in Acts chapter 25 with Paul still in Caesarea, but now interacting with a different governor, Governor Festus, who will, uh, that always sounds like Fester, and I would just hate to have the name Festus, but Paul and Festus, and we'll see two other characters in our text this morning as well. Text that I've titled, by the names of the characters that we see, Festus, Agrippa, Paul, and Jesus, all here in Caesarea. Now in chapters 25 and 26 of Acts, as Paul now appears before two new governors, Felix and, uh, and the, the Jewish, if you will, King Agrippa, uh, ultimately appealing his case to Caesar, Paul does not deter from his consistent gospel message and call to repentance and faith in Jesus. Time after time, again and again, it doesn't matter who Paul finds himself in front of. Whether they are Athenian pagans or governors and kings, Paul is going to preach the gospel of Jesus. Paul demonstrates for us that whether he is in chains or whether he is free, whether he's before governors or kings or the religious elite, that the mission of making disciples is what matters most to Paul. Nothing else takes precedent. Nothing else is more important than making disciples of Jesus as he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, this morning as we look at Acts 25 and 26, we ought to have our hearts aligned with Paul. Prioritizing a consistent and compassionate presentation of the gospel of Jesus with a bold call to place faith in Christ As we look at Paul and the example that he sets for us in faith and see how he is empowered by God to do this time and again, we ought to, as the church of Jesus Christ, want to have our hearts aligned with Christ in this, and our lives, the pattern of our lives, aligned with Paul in this as well. This morning we look at two chapters from Acts 25 and 26. We'll not read the whole of it. We'll read uh, sections of it that summarize most of the content of these two chapters. Will you stand with me together as we read God's word, beginning in Acts chapter 25, verse 1. <clears throat> Luke, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues here. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said Festus, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat with the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, his sister, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days. Festus, And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. Move down to verse 23. Festus will, in these verses in between, continue to lay out to Agrippa, summarize the things that have, been, that have happened, and uh, asking Agrippa for some advice. Twenty-three, Verse 23 of chapter 25, we read, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Jump to the beginning of chapter 26. Verse 1 says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission now to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And as Paul gives his defense, he tells to Agrippa and those who are listening, essentially his testimony, his life before Christ, the dramatic appearance of Jesus to him on the road to Damascus, his conversion to faith, and his call to go to the Gentiles. And he picks up in verse 19 of chapter 26. And to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Caesar. And God bless his people as we study his word this morning. You may be seated. Paul again, now before another governor and a king, giving his witness to the gospel, his testimony to the power of Christ, who was promised even by Moses and the prophets, doing what he does time and time again. I hope that you're not sick of Paul's example here. I hope that you, like me, continue to be challenged and convicted by what we see our brother here doing. As we look at this text this morning, I want to look at it through the lens of four different characters that are presented to us. First of all, let's look at Festus, the pagan people pleaser. Festus, the pagan people pleaser. Festus is most certainly a pagan. He's not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He believes in the gods of Rome. And he does not know of Jesus, anything of Jesus, other than what has been said in the charges against Paul. In Acts chapter 25, verse 19, you'll read there that uh, Festus is elucidating the charges against Paul to Agrippa, and he says that to Agrippa that the Jews had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. This is all that Festus seems to know about Jesus, is that he's this Jew who was dead, but now people are saying is risen again. Festus is not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He's a pagan. And to be sure, Festus knows what is most important to know about Jesus at this point, that Jesus died and was raised again. Whether he believes it or not is another factor altogether, but he at least knows these facts that are being asserted. But Festus is not compelled by these things. He's not compelled by this news of Jesus' resurrection, and he himself seems to be continually skeptical about it. To a pagan Roman, the thought of someone rising from the dead would have been ridiculous. And Festus admits that he has no way of knowing how to corroborate this claim of Jesus' resurrection. His own pagan roots make him almost incapable of hearing Paul's defense in these chapters with any any seriousness whatsoever. Festus says in 26-24, he responds to Paul in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're great learning. All this time you spent in school, learning about these religious things and becoming an expert, it has driven you insane. Festus is a pagan who has a really hard time believing the gospel. But Festus is also a non-controversialist. He's a people pleaser. He doesn't want to cause trouble. Along the way, we find Festus trying to find as many ways as possible to avoid conflict from the charges laid against Paul. Now, Festus has come into a situation that he didn't create for himself. He becomes governor of the regions of Judea and Samaria, with the capital being there in the city of Caesarea. And he's got a prisoner on his hands that he didn't arrest and he didn't keep in prison. Uh, Festus has a problem that's a holdover from Felix, And so Festus is just trying to deal with this as non-controversially, as uh, as easily as he can without causing more conflict. Festus is aware that in Jerusalem there's a riot just about on the brink of breaking out if he allows Paul to go free, if he allows him into the care of the Jews. And so in chapter uh, 24, verses 4 and 5, we see there that Festus lets the Jews know that he's not going to bring Paul back to Jerusalem. If Festus brings Paul back to Jerusalem, he's got a whole other dumpster fire on his hands to try to put out. But at the same time, Festus, not wanting to start a riot, also knows that it's better for him and for his governorship if if he maintains a good relationship with the Jews and the uh, Jewish ruling elite in that area. And so he's happy to allow the Jews to send some representatives from Jerusalem back to Caesarea to bring their charges against Paul here. He's he's throwing them a bone to keep the peace. All the same, Festus knows that Paul is innocent of the charges that are brought against him. But Festus desires to avoid controversy by allowing the Jews to bring their charges, at least to have a, a hearing in court. Friends, this morning, see how shrewd Festus is. Then, When he confronts Paul in chapter 25, verse 9, saying essentially, uh, these guys have no legitimate charge against you, Paul. You are, you are set to go free. So here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to do them a favor and you a favor at the same time. You come with me. We'll go back to Jerusalem. I'll be the judge who sits over your case. You know that you're not going to be condemned to, condemned to death because the charges against you are, are false. So, but if, I, if, if we can have your trial in Jerusalem, the Jews will be happy and you'll go free. It's a win win, Paul. Moreover, after Paul, so Paul is, is not won over by, by Festus' uh, suggestion here. Instead, Paul says, No, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, I'll, I'll be tried the way that I'm supposed to be tried. After Paul requests to go to Caesar to plead his case, he says, enough with this business. I'm going to appeal all the way to the, to the top. I'm going to go to the emperor himself and let him deal with this case. Festus, shrewd, pagan, non-controversial, people-pleasing Festus, not knowing what to do with Paul, because Paul can't just go along to get along, brings in a sort of king from the area, Agrippa, Agrippa II to help to bring some wisdom to this matter. Festus isn't really sure what to do with this guy, Paul. He's innocent, and yet Paul wants to stay in prison. Festus may recognize that if Paul's case gets all the way to Caesar, as Paul has pleaded, Paul says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. I have a right to be heard by Caesar, so I appeal to Caesar. Festus may recognize that if Paul's case makes it all the way to Caesar without legitimate charges in place, that Festus is going to be in trouble. Caesar will look at Festus and say, really, dude? You couldn't deal with this little problem. You had to let it come all the way to Rome. And so Festus brings in Agrippa to say, hey, I, gotta, I need something to write down uh, to send with Paul on the way. Otherwise, uh, it may be my head on the chopping block too. And so we see that at every point, Festus is trying to please all people and save his own skin and avoid controversy at every turn. There's something we can learn from Festus, and it's not a good thing. What we learn from Festus and from the way that he's portrayed in Acts chapter 25 and 26 is that we ought not to live our lives to please others, nor to be pleased by others. Don't live your life like Festus, living to please other people, to make other people happy. And at the same time, don't live your life in order to be pleased by others, expecting others to make you happy. Our life is not about, this life on uh, on this earth that God has given to us in Christ is not about being happy or being made happy or making other people happy. It's about being holy. It's about being conformed in the image of Christ. So, friend, do not live your life to please others nor to be pleased to others, but live your life to please God and not men. Live your life to please God and not men. Paul himself writes to the church... In Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he says this For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Listen, church, if I were still trying to please man, Paul says, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul recognizes that in the Christian life there is but one person to please, and that one person is God. And that in pleasing God, we are often going to displease people. In striving after holiness and Christ's likeness, in preaching the gospel with boldness and compassion, we are going to offend others. Or let me say it differently. Others will be offended by, by the gospel that we preach. But it's not the, the approval of people that God has called us to live for. It is not an easy life now that God has saved us by faith in Christ to live but a life that is pleasing to God. And so, Christian, do not be like Festus, living your life to please others, nor to be pleased by others. Instead, live your life for a better purpose. Live your life to please God and not men. There's a second character in our story this morning. We have Festus, and we have the other ruler who's presented to us, Agrippa, one who who, who I have called the dignified deflector. I'm exercising all of my pastoral alliterative skill this week. Agrippa, the dignified deflector. Agrippa is, first of all, a pseudo-king. You know that word, that, that prefix pseudo means not real, means fake. He's a fake king. Agrippa II, who's mentioned here, the supposed king uh, of, uh, of certain areas, uh, uh, segregated areas in the region, sort of of Judea and Samaria, comes to visit Festus in the end of chapter 25. Herod Agrippa II, the man mentioned here, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was the one who called the census during the days of Jesus' birth. And he's the son of Herod Agrippa who killed James and arrested Peter and fell dead and was eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12. So he comes from a great line. Agrippa II had a vastly constricted kingdom compared to his father. His father, Herod Agrippa I, uh, ruled over much of Judea and Samaria, but when Agrippa II came onto the scene after his father died, uh, the powers that that, that were in Rome vastly constricted his territory of rulership. He never ruled, Agrippa II never ruled over uh, the more Jewish areas of Judea and Samaria. Instead, he was relegated by Rome to govern over less commercially, less politically significant areas, mostly populated by Gentiles. He's a king of the Jews all in quotation marks, who isn't even ruling over any Jewish areas. He's a pseudo-king. All the same, Agrippa likes to think of himself as a king. He thinks much of himself. Agrippa loves himself some Agrippa. And he and his half-sister Bernice do all that they can to play up the role of of this dignified aristocracy. The text tells us that they come into the hall on the day that Paul is to give his his, his defense with great pomp. Right? So they, they come in with an entourage. they got a whole crew of people walking into this room with them that day. Agrippa loves himself some Agrippa. And Agrippa loves himself a good royal entrance. But he's not a real king. He's a pseudo-king. He's also a deflector. He's a non-committer. Just as Festus desires to avoid controversy, so also does Agrippa desire to avoid spiritual commitment. Festus can't stand controversy. Agrippa can't stand commitment. While Agrippa is glad to play the part of a king, he is not comfortable making difficult decisions like a king. Paul's respectful and dignified defense before Agrippa recalls again Paul's upbringing and his training as a Pharisee, his intense persecution of the church in its early days, his dramatic confrontation by Jesus on the road to to Damascus. Paul recounts the call of Christ that he receives to go to the Gentiles with the gospel message and especially of his obedience to what is already clear from the Hebrew scriptures written by Moses and the prophets that the Christ must suffer and rise again in order to bring hope, in order to bring salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life to the whole world. Then after Paul gives this defense, which is just his, it's his life story with, with, uh, flavored or, or through the lens of the gospel, after he finishes this defense, he puts Agrippa on the spot in front of Bernice, his half-sister, Festus, the governor, and everyone else who is listening that day. He says, Paul says to this Jewish king that he knows that none of the events of his life and the growth of the church have escaped Agrippa's sight. None of this, Paul says, has been done in the corner. None of the things that you're hearing today have been done in the shadows. All of this has been open for everyone to see and to testify to, and it has been attested to. These are real events. So he looks at Agrippa, and he says, Agrippa, knowing what you know from the Hebrew scriptures, from Moses and the prophets, he says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. I know you do, Agrippa. We don't, it doesn't come perfectly clear to us in Paul's statement, but what we understand Paul to be saying here is this, Agrippa, you king of the Jews, I know that you believe Moses and the prophets like good Jews do. So then will you do as I have done and take the next step to believe the prophets by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Messiah? You say you believe Moses. You say you believe the prophets. They prophesied. They pointed to Jesus, who is the Christ, who died on the cross and was raised again to forgive people of their sins. Not just Jews, but Gentiles too. Uh, Agrippa, are you willing to make the next logical step? Do you believe Moses and the prophets? I know you do. I know you do. Agrippa's response is not really a response, is it? He turns to Paul. He asks, Paul, do you really think you can make me a Christian in such a short time? Agrippa's answer is not an answer. His answer is a deflection. The answer to Paul's que- appropriate answers to Paul's question are yes or no. Do you believe the prophets? Yes or no? But Agrippa doesn't give an answer there. He answers with another question. Paul, do you really think you can make me a Christian in such a short amount of time? Agrippa cannot publicly deny the prophets. That would be political suicide. But he's also unwilling to affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet this is the confrontation, friends, that all of us must respond to one way or the other in this life. Will we believe the gospel? Presented with the truth that there is a God who created all that we see and know, and that he has created every one of us as human beings to know him, to love him, to worship him. Knowing what we know that the Bible says that every one of us on our own, out of our own will, have chosen to rebel against God, to sin against him, to break fellowship with him knowing that we have no fellowship with God on our own merits, but that God loved us in such a way to send his own son to die on a cross for our sins and be raised from the dead. Will you believe that gospel? Will you submit to Jesus Christ as Lord? Will you follow the storyline that begins in Genesis and, and continues on through the Gospels and come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is Lord? This is the fact. This is the truth that we all have to reckon with at some way, shape, or form in our lives. Will we submit to Jesus? This is what Paul is asking Agrippa. And what's Agrippa's answer? It's not yes or no. It's somewhere in the middle. It's not even really a good maybe. He's just deflecting another direction. Ah, Paul, you really think you can make me a Christian in five minutes? Come on, man. Paul says to Agrippa, responds to Agrippa's deflection. King Agrippa, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Man. Man. Paul is a is like a he's like a theological evangelistic sharpshooter like he knows the bullseye to hit and the brother can't miss he puts Agrippa on the spot Agrippa tries to deflect and Paul like grabs him by the neck and pulls him back to focus on the question at hand what's it going to be Agrippa whether short or long, brother, I got one message to preach, and it is that Jesus is Lord, and you need to trust him. So whether it happens today or 100 years from today, Agrippa, I would to God, I pray to God, that not just you, but everyone who's hearing me, by the way, right? Paul turns to preach to the choir, okay? That everyone would be as I am, except for these chains. Would that everyone would know Jesus as Lord is, is, is Paul's response to Agrippa. We learned a lesson from Festus. Don't don't live your life to please others. Live your life to please God. We learned a lesson from Agrippa as well. And that is this. Do not deflect the urgency of the call of the gospel to follow Jesus as Lord. Don't deflect it. Don't put up a shield against the the call of the gospel. Instead, friends, make a life-defining decision about Jesus. Make a decision about Jesus. That decision can be yes. We want that decision to be yes. The the gospel that we preach every single week is that anyone who places faith in Jesus Christ can be forgiven of their sins, enjoy a right relationship with God the Father, and have the promise of eternal life even after death. But you don't have to answer yes. You can answer no. Either decision is a life-defining decision about Jesus. Paul pleads with Agrippa, answer yes. Trust Jesus as Lord. But he still puts the ball in Agrippa's court. Do you know why? Because Agrippa can't, uh, Agrippa can't have the choice made for him. Dear friend, you, you cannot have the choice made for you as to whether you will be a Christian or not. I cannot believe on behalf of my daughter Ellie, who we just baptized this morning. I can't save her. My faith can't save my daughter. Only her faith can. My faith can't save you, friend. Christian, no one's faith but your own given to you by God can save you from your sin. Deal with that. Stop deflecting. You who call yourself a Christian today and, 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 and may be content to live your life by just following the rules, ticking all of the Christian boxes, going to church, tithing, showing up at Sunday school, but have never made a life-defining decision about Jesus Christ, make that decision today. Yeah. Become a real Christian today. Yeah. We learn from Festus. We learn from Agrippa. Third, we learn from Paul. Paul, who is the consistent gospel preacher. The brother just can't quit. Now, Paul, our very good friend and brother in Christ, is not like Festus. And he's certainly not like Agrippa. Paul is a respectful confronter. Paul is a respectful confronter. Unlike Festus, who cannot stand controversy or confrontation, who's always looking looking to find a way to avoid those things, Paul is unafraid to confront people with important truths. Paul knows that eternity hangs in the balance with what people do with Jesus. And so he ain't scared to bring people to that point of decision. Paul boldly makes his defense before Festus and Agrippa without once wavering in his conviction about Jesus. Did you catch that? Never once does Paul hesitate or equivocate or or waffle at all on who Jesus is. Where Festus shows a fear of man, where Agrippa shows a fear of submitting actually to Christ, Paul shows instead a deep love for everyone he encounters. This is a love that can only be driven by the Holy Spirit, a love that would bring Paul to plead with Agrippa to believe in Jesus. And not only Agrippa, as we saw, but everyone who heard him that day. Everywhere Paul goes, whether he's in Athens or Philippi or Thessalonica or standing before a Roman governor and a sort of Jewish king, Paul has one message, Jesus is Lord, submit to him. Festus and Agrippa may be men of power in their day who commanded the fear of those that they ruled over. But Paul fears the Lord. And it is out of Paul's fear of the Lord, his, his, his deep reverential awe for Christ, for God the Father, that he loves these two men who apart from repentance from their sin and faith in Jesus Christ stand to spend an eternity in hell separated from God. Nothing is more important to Paul but this truth. However long it takes, Agrippa, short time or a long time, I pray to God that you and all who hear me will one day know Jesus like I do. Paul is a respectful confronter. He doesn't insult Agrippa. He doesn't assault, fe- insult uh, Festus. He doesn't insult anybody that he's sharing the gospel with. The call to share the gospel is a call to be bold for Christ. It's not a call to be a jerk for Jesus. So be a respectful confronter. Learn from Paul's example here. Paul is a respectful confronter, but he's also a confident Christian. He is a confident Christian. Paul is just dripping with confidence in these chapters as he gives his defense. It's just all over the guy. His confidence does not come from arrogance. It does not come from pride. His confidence comes from a humble knowledge of God's call on his life Paul says in chapter 25 verse 11 as we read, he says to Festus, if I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not escape. I do not seek to escape death. If I deserve to die, then go ahead and kill me. But if there's nothing, nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. So I appeal to Caesar. Let's run this thing up the ladder. Paul knows in this moment he's done nothing wrong. He knows that the charges against him are baseless. He knows that Christ has called him to testify in Rome, as we saw Jesus say to him in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Paul is aware that the safest place in all the world for him to be is shackled and handcuffed for the gospel on his way to Rome to preach to the emperor. This confidence that Paul has in Jesus Christ can come and does come only from Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who called Peter to repentance on the Damascus Road. It was Jesus who appeared to Peter in, or to, to Paul, excuse me, in Acts chapter 23 to say, "You will testify to me in Rome." It is Jesus who opens the eyes of all kinds of people. So as we read in Paul's defense, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God by faith in Jesus. It was God Himself who strengthened Paul for this mission and emboldened him with all of the confidence that he has in the gospel. And it is the confidence that Paul has in Christ. It is the confidence, the assurance that Paul has of the truth of the gospel itself that drives Paul to continually and consistently share the same gospel over and over and over again to anyone that he has the opportunity to share it with, even in chains. So Paul can write to the church at Philippi In his letter we call Philippians, just a couple years from the present moment in Acts, as he's sitting in jail, waiting to be heard by the emperor, he says in Philippians chapter one, verses 12 to 14 to the church in Philippi, he says, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me, he's speaking of his imprisonment for the gospel. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of uh, all the rest that my uh, is become to excuse me known to the whole of the imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for christ everybody who comes into contact with me church at philippi knows that i am chained for jesus and that's a good thing and most of the brothers have become confident in the lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear Paul says, chain me up, throw me in a cell. It's all the better for the gospel. This is so contradictory to our uh, 21st century ideas of freedom and liberty and what is best. We live in a society, in a culture that, that prioritizes, let me even say, idolizes personal liberty and freedom. We have a political party called the Libertarian Party that wants freedom of choice on every matter for everyone uh, in the nation. And that is seen as the highest possible good, that everyone be free to go where they want to go, to do what they want to do, to hang out with who they want to hang out with, to live out whatever plans that they have for their life. We live in a culture that says, that is the best thing. That is worth dying for. And God says, not quite. Paul says, not quite. Paul, sitting, shackled, hands and ankles in a Roman prison says, this is way better for me than being able to go where I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want. The gospel goes farther with me tied up, hand and foot, than to be free on my own to get on a boat to go wherever I want to go. The gospel is more powerful with me in chains, Paul says, than with me free to go to whomever I want to go to. So chain me up, lock me up, put me in a cell, cut off my head. Can't nothing stop gospel. Can't nothing stop the gospel. Oh, mercy church. Oh. Would that we would have the confidence in Christ that Paul had. Just in your mind's eye, imagine with me this morning the wave of Transformation, spiritual transformation of new life that we might see in this neighborhood, in Taylor Ranch, in our city, Albuquerque, throughout our state and our nation. If every one of us could sit with Paul and say, Chain me up, tie me up, put me in a cell. Can't nothing stop my Jesus. In fact, you might even help the work that I'm doing. Oh, church, would that we all would be like Paul. Dear Christian, this morning, resist the temptation. Resist the temptation to be infrequent and inconsistent in your gospel sharing. Instead, find your confidence, find your assurance, find your security, not in personal liberty, but in Jesus Christ. Find your confidence in Jesus Christ so that you can love the lost and graciously confront their disbelief at every moment. Find your confidence in Jesus. If you need an example to see what that looks like, just look at Paul. Paul. Look at his life. In the Old Testament, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 21 to 27, we get these words of wisdom. The writer of Proverbs says, My son, do not lose sight of these words of wisdom. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely. And your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. And when it is in your power, do it. Even in Proverbs, we get wisdom from God that says, Trust in me. I've got this. Find your confidence in the Lord. And then, as you find confidence in the Lord, give, do good to all to whom it is due. And do you know what the greatest good is that you can do to anyone in the world? Share with them the gospel. Point to them how they might come to, to have hope of eternal life and a right relationship with God. There is no better thing you can do for any other person on this planet than to share with them the gospel. So find your confidence in the Lord and do good, do gospel good to those to whom it is due. Find your confidence in Jesus Christ to love the lost and graciously confront their disbelief, friends. Finally, church, we see the fourth character before us in this text this morning. And that fourth character is Jesus. Jesus, the risen Lord. Festus, Agrippa, and Paul are not the only characters in these chapters. They are not even the central characters of these chapters. In fact, it is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who is at the center of all that is taking place in Acts chapter 25 and 26. Now look, Jesus is not physically present in the body in these scenes, okay? He doesn't, he doesn't come on, he doesn't have any lines in this passage, but he does appear in several places. Festus recognizes that it is Jesus who's at the center of this Jewish controversy, this Jewish complaint about Paul in Acts 25:19. Festus says, this whole thing is all about this guy, Jesus. It's not even really about Paul. It is Jesus who appears all throughout Paul's testimony, as we saw in chapter 26. We would not be wrong here in saying that, it, that Paul is who he is at this point in his life in Acts 25 and 26 because of Jesus' own personal and powerful intervention in Paul's life. Paul is not Paul apart from Jesus. It is Jesus whom Paul says that Moses and the prophets spoke of in his testimony, that Jesus must, as he quotes uh, uh, or summarizes the law and the prophets, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Dear friends, it is the person of Jesus that freezes Agrippa in his tracks. It's not Paul. It's not Paul's argumentation that catches Agrippa off guard. It's the prospect of having to submit to Jesus as Lord that catches Agrippa off guard. Church, of Jesus really is, as Paul has stated time and time again, the Son of God, crucified for the sins of humanity and raised victorious from the dead, then Jesus is the sort of central character in history with whom everyone must reckon. Most people, many people, Even some who might call themselves Christians, though, are hesitant to bow before Jesus and to call him Lord. Instead, many have been taught, they've allowed themselves to believe that it is enough to see Jesus as simply a a good moral teacher who sets us a good example, a better way to live and who died tragically, but as a, a simple show of God's love for us. Jesus is a good moral teacher who shows God's love to us, but dear friends, Jesus is so much more than a moral teacher. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, lays out an argument that causes, it's intended to cause everyone to reckon with what we will do with Jesus. In his argument, he lays out the, the, the flow of Scripture and, and how we come to the person and the work of Christ. And he says that, that for Jesus to do the things that he did and to say the things that he did would make him either a madman, a horrible deceiver, or something else all entirely. But nothing, even close to just a moral Teacher, C.S. Lewis says this, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, Friend, how have you reckoned with Jesus? How have you come to terms with Jesus? Do not be like Festus, thinking Jesus just to be a silly figment of Jewish mythology, or maybe even a a great great human moral teacher. Do not be like Agrippa, unwilling to reckon with the logical conclusions of the claims of Scripture. Don't be a deflector. Rather, dear friends, be like Paul. Be like so many other unnamed, faithful brothers and sisters who gave their life for the gospel and reckon with the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord, that he is creator and king of the universe, that he gave his life for your sins and rose from the dead, not just so that you could think he's a cool dude, but because he is king, he calls you to bow your knee to him. Reckon with the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord. And dear friend, give your whole life to his control. I am not this morning speaking only to those who may not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Christian, I'm speaking to you. Christian, I'm preaching to us this morning. We must reckon with the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord. It's not a dashboard bobblehead. It's not a poster you stick on your door. He's not your homeboy. He's your king. How have you reckoned with your king? Now, he's a loving king. He's a gracious king. He's the best king in all the universe and outside of it. But have you submitted to him as such? Have you given your whole life to his control? Old song says, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Has that been your response to Jesus or are you holding back still? In a moment, we'll have a time of response. We'll sing together a song that ought to be our prayer and even our own personal commitment. And if you need to reckon with the king, if you need to reckon with Jesus this morning, during the time that we sing that song, that is your time to reckon with him. That is your time to give your life fully over to Him. I'll be standing at the front. Corey, our youth minister, will be standing here as well. We'll, We'd love to greet you and to pray with you about how you can trust Jesus as Lord and as King this morning. Do not leave this place this morning without reckoning with Jesus, without coming to terms with Christ, without giving all of your life to His control, trusting in Him and Him only for your salvation. This morning you may be looking for a, a church to call your own, to call home, a church that preaches this gospel week in and week out because it's the best message we have. It's the best news we have to give to the world. You may want to or be desiring to join your life to the life of this church and to help us to preach the gospel, to help us to lead people to reckon with the King this way. If you'd like to give your life or or commit your life to the life of this church, come and talk to me about that this morning. I'll be happy to receive you and, and talk with you about next steps for doing that. Whatever it is that you need to do to be obedient to Jesus this morning, do it. Do it and don't delay. Let's pray.